You're listening to the Premier Podcast Network. Welcome to the pinnacle of wrestling entertainment, Premier Streaming Network. Join us at watchonpremier.com to unlock the ultimate wrestling experience, curated to perfection. Immerse yourself in the spectacular world of wrestling history, where classic battles and unforgettable moments are at your fingertips. Join us today and experience the epitome of curated wrestling content, because when it comes to wrestling entertainment, Premier sets the standard. Be Premier. What's up, everybody? This is Dominic D'Angelo of Inside the Ropes and several other outlets, but I'm here today on the Premier Streaming Network or in your podcast ears. It is episode 18 of One of a Kind with the star himself, Mr. Rob Van Dam. RVD, my dude, how are you this week? Excellent, dude. Van Dam, good. Ah, that's great to everything hear. Is, everything is great. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm in a pretty good spirits, too, because uh, I picked up uh, the Celestian Prophecy, so... Uh, I cracked it open a little bit, started reading it. Uh, there's an air, yep, air of mystery going on because he met with the woman there at the restaurant. Okay. And he wants to know about this manuscript and stuff, so I'm intrigued. In her suitcase. Nice. nice. That sets it up, man. I tell you, I tell everybody this. If you can get past the first chapter, it gets better. Like It's kind of hard to get into, at least I find, at the beginning, just to set up all these you know, chance coincidences. He ends up taking a flight he didn't know he was going to take, you know, after meeting this woman that he knows that he happened to run into because he had extra time at the airport and called her, whatever, boom, boom, boom. Once you get past all that, and then it starts getting into, like, when it gets to uh, Peru, the story really picks up. And and if you can relate, like, uh, you know, like-minded energy um sensitive people then um it'll take you for a ride i'm ready to roll man it's good stuff so far like i'm intrigued and i didn't know it was like oh i think it's like over 30 years old the book got published like 30 years ago I think, so it's a classic i know a lot of people are familiar with it and like i said they've they study guides and sequels and a, a movie that sucks really bad <laughs> the movie sucks <laughs> yeah they didn't get the point it didn't translate well at all Oh no, that's not good. The book's in my opinion. In my opinion, yeah, the book's usually better. <laughs> Can't even recommend. Jurassic, even Jurassic Park, the book I thought was better than the movie. The movie I liked, so. Yeah, well, some movies do uh, really good, you know, and do really uh, good uh, as far as bringing the books to life. I think, you know, yeah. Like when I think when I think of The Irishman, I think that did, you know, I read the book by Charles Brant, and it was like. Um, I thought that's what they did was they told that story that was in the book. And then a lot of people will criticize the movie and say the movie got a couple things wrong. You know, they'll say, uh, the Irishman, he didn't, he didn't kill, uh, Joey Gallo. He didn't kill, but, um, the book says he did. And they were just telling the story from the book. Right. Going by that, you know, yeah. and you know, who the hell knows what happened to Jimmy Hoffa, but that's how they, they interpreted it in the book and stuff. So, um, I liked the movie. It was long, but I liked it. I always like yeah, it. me too, me too. Um, 
for that reason, you know, because they did a great job of bringing the book to life. Yeah, how about that? Sweet. All right. Well, uh, we'll start it off. Did you watch any wrestling this week? Um, I feel like I did. Well, I watched Katie wrestle on uh, yeah. on Sunday in L.A. for the – is it UWW? W W, something like that. Uh, man, I guess I should look that one up. But U W W or whatever. It's uh, Melina. It commentates and uh, Rampage. Quentin Jackson is the GM. Uh, so it's really cool. It's an all women's group, and um, we you know had a lot of fun time watching her wrestle. Nice, nice. A pretty good atmosphere and everything like that. How it all? Yeah, it was a great atmosphere. Uh, great building. I love the uh, the old theaters in LA that have the uh, marquees out in front from the uh, '30s. Yeah, you know that was uh, that was my, uh, my my world for a while. Was uh, Hollywood history. They they promote all the time on Instagram, so you'll see it. But I can't remember if it's UWW. I think that's what it is, but. It's not um, wow, right? It's not ultimate, or- maybe ultimate women wrestling. Oh, no, it's okay. not uh, these girls, and I'll tell you, these girls are way better than the wow wrestlers. Yeah, way better. That's what you know. The owner asked me like two or three matches in. He said, What do you think? That's exactly what I told him because you know, it's like he books uh indie wrestlers that are actually wrestlers, and with wow, for some reason, that guy David McLean that owns wow likes to take actors. Like trying into wrestling. What's that? Like models and stuff. Models and actresses, and then and then and then try to teach them to wrestle. And that that gets you a, a totally different product, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so to say the least. But these girls were really good. Everyone worked really hard. Good show, and I look forward to the next one. Heck yeah! Heck yeah! Well, um, here we'll hit it with a little feedback as we usually do. Uh, let's see here. Feedback number one. Oh, okay. this is on the comment of, I believe, the truthful video that we were talking about. Tell them the truth. Rob, you are what every human being should inspire to be. You are sincere, honest, and give off ultimate positivity. I hope I get to meet you one day. Keep up the good work, says SG Good 6590. That was five days ago. So, awesome. Well, those are, that's the kind of feedback that I like to hear, you yeah. know, that, uh, that goes straight to the heart. Feels good. Makes me feel, uh, it validates my efforts, and I'm, very happy to inspire and i can't argue with them you know if i thought i was a uh, a piece of shit then i would say yeah, i mean some people know that about themselves you know what i mean it's weird but i've had some people i mean some people would be like dude you don't you don't want to take after me bro you know what i mean like can you imagine like feeling so low about yourself that you wouldn't recommend but i mean i can imagine but it's not me you know what right. i mean like i'm very proud and we're going to talk about pride too uh pretty soon but um you know um i strive to always better myself and i think i'm doing a really good job and i'm uh pretty proud of the values i live by and and um you know i think that uh looking out at the world a lot of people could benefit from from walking in my shoes, so to speak, you know, or or living uh, living with my ideology uh, or whatever. If you're inspired by me, then I'm glad and uh, and I own it. Right, I, I think yeah. a good sense of it is the positivity that comes from it too, and like you know, having the different outlook on things, I think 
really much helps. And I think it's coming through to the viewers and the listeners here too. It's like, you, you know, any of the RVDology is really like it's hitting home. I think with some people, I know it is with me. So that's for sure. So we'll talk about that in a little bit, but uh, feedback number two, extra medium size mang says barbed wire match is a good wrinkle. This is referencing the uh, WrestleMania dream match, like who your opponent would be. You said it was going to be, you would have liked to have it Sabu and maybe a barbed wire match. He says, I'd personally go bam bam and try to do that insanity on the biggest stage ever. People would have lost their minds seeing what they could do in a stadium. Yeah, bam bam's a, a classic rival of yours. So that, that's a good suggestion, too, I think. Um, cool. Yes. Yep. Uh, feedback number three. In an ECW style match, how about an ECW showcase? A fatal four way, no holds barred. Sabu versus Salmon versus Rhino versus RVD. That's a interesting ripple going a fatal four way match. Do you like fatal four ways? Um, I don't know. Yeah, sure, whatever, sure, whatever. <laughs> yeah, they're good. I they seem like a hodgepodge sometimes. Um, triple threats, I can kind of take a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I always like just a good one on one though. Now, this is not feedback to the podcast, but I thought this was very interesting since we've talked about this before. Uh, 90s WWE, one of these Twitter handles says, Who's the first wrestler to think of when you see this belt? And of course, somebody says RVD, easy, duh. And it's pretty evident too. It's like, and the match that we're going to cover today, uh, it like has that tied in. So it's like, and you can definitely tell how synonymous you are with that hardcore title and what you did to establish it too. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, that was, that was one of my favorite, uh, championships to defend. And, and also it helped me adjusting to WWE because, when I was the hardcore representative, I was able to be myself within limitations, you know, within their guidelines and their time limit and, and whatever. But I was able to express myself the way that RVD needs to be showcased, you know. So that was really cool. I started making the belt mean something, adding prestige to it, credibility, which it didn't have before i mean it was a joke it was yeah. a joke i mean hardcore match before was going to the hot dog stand and squirting mustard all over each other and pretty soon i'm main eventing the uh, live events um and so they had to get rid of that belt <laughs> you, you were establishing it too much <laughs> yeah so um okay uh something that we haven't done in a while but i kind of wanted to bring it back because you always talked about how you would ultimately like to have that match with Mike Awesome. And uh, we would, in the comments on that YouTube clip that was posted, then we would have um, people would put their dream opponents on there and stuff like that. And somebody suggests, so we covered Macho Man, we covered Mr. Perfect, we covered Bret Hart. This one was an interesting one and uh, kind of ties into to almost the merger that happened with WWE and uh, Endeavors. Like they're a part of UFC now that TKO holdings. But somebody said Ken Shamrock. Have you ever crossed paths with Ken in the ring at all? No, not in the ring at all, ever. Um, you know, I respect the hell out of Ken and I've known him like my entire career. Um, been around, you know, like it was 1991 when I went to uh, South Atlantic Pro Wrestling and first saw him, and he was Vince Torelli. Uh, that's what he was wrestling under. And I just remember I was just this really young green kid, you know, but uh, I remember looking, and not only did his physique 
look amazing, but he was just doing these standing high jumps, you know, bouncing up and down, warming up in the dressing room. And he just looked so athletic. He was jumping so high. And uh, one of the boys, um, I'm trying to think of who it was. I guess I couldn't do that right now. But uh, they were talking about him telling me, you know, like uh, like that he had, he was a badass and he had won we he had won the last five tough man contests in a row that were that were that came through Charlotte and uh, you know so I always had my eye on him and there was one story back then too um, that that several of the guys told me because they would be bragging on Vince Torelli and Manny Fernandez was the booker back then oh the bull. <laughs> The stories you get out of me on these things, but um, Manny, yeah, the Bull Fernandez was the boss, the booker running the show in South Atlantic Pro Wrestling back then out of Charlotte. And uh, Manny's got quite a reputation himself. You know, yeah. Manny, there's a lot of stories of Manny and Dick Murdoch throwing around like a whole bar room full of people, um, stories like that. And so the story that one time, Manny and Vince Torelli had a disagreement and that Vince Torelli had Manny jacked up against the wall, went really far with the boys. You know? I bet. I bet. Yeah, like he had Manny up against the wall. Manny didn't want nothing to do with it. You know, and he didn't want the smoke. But then they used to say that back then. They weren't cool enough. No. <laughs> no, I remember Matt Hardy telling a story how like he was a young promoter, like just a kid, basically. Matt? Yeah, Matt Hardy doing like Omega Wrestling with Jeff. And so they were running like this kind of like backyard kind of pseudo promotion in North Carolina. And here comes Manny Fernandez. Um, he said, oh, I know this story. I do know this story. Yeah, he showed up to work, right? He tried Without to intimidate the fuck out of Matt. And book like, him. Yeah, and like he's like, yeah, I'm going to be on this card, right? And yeah. Matt's like, no, man, we can't have you on here. And like Manny was ready to square up against him. But luckily, Matt had a lot of his friends standing there. And then finally, uh, Manny relented. He's like, well, can I just have a table then at least? And he's like, yeah, of course, have a table. <laughs> so it it kind of worked out in that way, but great story. For yeah, people don't, people nowadays, you know, the marks that just think that, you know, it's, it's a scripted world and their heads are, you know, I know how it all is. They would have no idea um, how, how it used to work back then, you know, in the, the territories and the end of the territory days, like, when I broke in, and that's that's something some of the guys that do. At, we used to call them outlaws, the, sh the indie shows back then, yeah. because if they didn't belong to the NWA banner, um, they were outlaws. You know, that was the that was the syndicated promotion across the country, and everyone paid up to it. And then there's the outlaw territories and outlaw promoters, and there was uh, people like Manny that would do that. They would show up, and, and a lot of guys would do that though. That was like that was a thing to do. They would just show up, even though they're not booked. You know, and, and you know, it's cool to hey, maybe someone will get hurt, someone won't show up. I got my gear, you know, maybe I'll get a spot on the card. But yeah, they would try to force their way on the card and sometimes even be talking to the promoter and not know it. It's I was told I was booked here, I was told to be here at five o'clock. They'd be like, By who? It's my show, you know. <laughs> You're talking to the guy, <laughs> yeah, dude. That's how it was back then in those days. That's funny. The, the Wild West man, outlaw and a half. I know, um. Yeah. Wasn't uh uh what's oh Angelo Poffo's uh Macho Man's dad wasn't he didn't wasn't he known to run the outlaw promotion down there too? 
I think I see he was a promoter. He was a promoter, but yeah, I don't know if he ever, you know, belonged to this NWA syndication or not. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you that, but I think he was, uh, well, uh, in Ohio, I guess, Illinois. Um, yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I know somewhere around there. But yeah, wow. All right. Well, what I wanted to lead into, kind of, uh, you know, you hear this by some of the wrestlers. I know Goldberg has mentioned this before. Um, I want to say some other ones too. Kurt Angle's kind of teased it a little bit too. Um, did you kind of, if like, where is there an interest of you going, maybe doing MMA or anything like that, or did you ever have an interest in that? I know you grew up a wrestling fan, so. I don't know if it kind of crossed over enough as it much did for like, like the other guys, but did you ever kind of have an interest in doing that once you saw so, it? So MMA wasn't around until I was already on my way with, with wrestling, you yeah. know, like even, even uh, kickboxing, people didn't even know what that was. I had to explain it. You know, when I told people I would kickbox and uh, they didn't know what that was, you know, it was like, it's, it um, I think it's a Ferris Bueller where he's like got a, taking a girl on a date and says, "I'm like I, I take kickboxing. It's the sport of the future." Telling the telling the girl's dad so he'll feel safe uh, with the, <laughs> with, on the date. But um, it's that guy anyway. Even if it's not Ferris Bueller, it's that that actor Matthew but, Broderick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I laughed at that because I was a kickboxer, so that's a big spot for me. But um, MMA wasn't around until um, I was already. I've been wrestling a while. I'd already been, uh, you know, I was already making a living at it and, uh, and on my way up and stuff. And so, like, the first MMA, uh, well, what MMA is, it's mixed martial arts, you know. And what, what the first UFC and the first several were, um, they were like, let's, let's put a sumo wrestler against a Kenpo karate dude and just see what happens, you know. And that was right. my buddy Keith Hackney and Emmanuel Yarbrough, and he took him out. Um, I think his name was Emmanuel Yarbrough. Actually, that might be the. I, I might. I think I have his name wrong. Uh, but anyway, let's take a boxer and a kung fu guy and put them together. Let's take a jujitsu expert and put him in there with a uh, a pit fighter, whatever the fuck that is. And, <laughs> and so, yeah, but uh, that was very entertaining. But I seems like that was around '93. I think I was already living in Savannah, Georgia, um, at that time, and had been wrestling three or four years and you know, wrestling in Japan and everything. So uh, if it was around when I was 17, 18, no question about it. I totally would have been into it. I was trying to take every martial art that I could and just absorb everything and take every challenge and spar in every class, even of arts that I didn't know and stuff. And, and I was just so hungry um, to learn and to prove myself to myself probably um, but I've always been a fan of it and then after the first several UFCs we actually learned what really would work more in a situation like that because there, there's always the the arguments of which art is best you know and and uh and then you know you put him in there and it's like wow it doesn't matter you know how much um Tai Chi, uh, you know, if you're in there with a boxer, dude, and getting knocked out, what good did all that fanning do for you? And it's like, that's what MMA is. It's mixed martial arts. That's how it became. It's a hybrid of everything, and it's fucking awesome. So I'm a fan. It's a lot of fun. I watched it this past weekend, and uh, 
you know, the, they had the big fights on there. And uh, I, I'm a casual fan, so I don't know the names offhand, but it's, it's, it is really intriguing to watch. And even if they get, the that, guys go the distance, it's like, that's a fucking good ass fight. You know, they're just laying it in. Yeah. And I, and I think like, I got all the respect for those guys as being the, the best athletes in the world, you know, cause you got to stay at your very tip top shape uh, when you're doing that, because you're fighting, other people that think they're the toughest people in the world from Japan or fucking, you know, India, wherever. And it's like, um, you're, you're in that way class, you're in their way. And, you know, you don't want to give up any edge that you don't have to. So those guys got to train their balls off. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's a, it's unbelievable. The amount of work that they put themselves through. And then like some of those fights, they don't last very long. And it's like, okay, back to the drawing board. And, you got to get used to the aspect of almost kind of like getting knocked out. That's just part of the game. It's like if you get knocked out, you, that's, that's it. You know, you, that's you crazy. Out. Yeah, that's crazy to go through the up and down emotions of that and oh. have the whole world seeing you knocked out and have your ego be okay with that. You know, after you've told everybody there's no way it's going to happen, you win. And that takes an amazing, uh, flexible emotional state um and, and by the way on the other side of the spectrum some of the fights do last long and they go five whole fucking five minute rounds can you imagine like that's like you know with a, with a minute in between that's like okay it's 728 now <laughs> by the time you're done fighting it's fucking gonna be uh you know eight o'clock that's crazy Dude, it's nuts. I can barely box for like two minutes straight and I'm winded. I'm just out of well, it. Well, somebody's got all their weight on you, you know, pressing yeah. against you. Yes. Oh, <laughs> great athletes. Great athletes. So if so, say if UFC was at its height when you were about 17, do you think you would have just transitioned right out of wrestling and gone into the UFC? Or would you still have been intrigued by pro wrestling to kind of stick around and do that? Um I I I, I mean, hypothetically, I guess I probably would have done both. You okay. Know? Yeah, yeah. I, I did that with. Uh, that's how it was with, with the kickboxing. You know, I I didn't. I got in the kickboxing because I wanted to wrestle, right? And I had to. I had to go to the kickboxing classes in order to use the ring, so that was what got me into it. And then, but I was already a fan, you know, of like chop sake, martial arts films, late night. Like I loved that stuff so i i was interested it wasn't like i was forced into it you know what i mean but i i found out i was doing really good you know knocked all my friends out and and could take a hell of a beating i had you know had endurance and uh and was picking up on uh, everything that uh that our instructor uh, kit likens was was teaching us and then he had his own fighters and i was hanging with them you know and, and got people that had years of experience or had alleged championship uh, belts or, or whatever. And then, uh, and I worked my way up through that, you know, and Kit Likens had two losses and I ended up eventually going to one of the guys, Terry Gay, who had beat Kit and me and Dango both, you know, went and started sparring with his guys and his guys were really good. I mean, they were big, you know, at least my size and had like 10 years experience and were adults were older than us, not kids. And these guys, you know, we would beat the hell out of each other. And we would go and we'd drive to, uh, I can't remember if it was Clearwater or Coldwater. I get that mixed up in my head because there was both, Clearwater and Coldwater, Michigan. But we would, uh, me and Dango would go and uh, Terry was happy to have us for food for his guys or whatever. But we would 
almost be fighting. I mean, we would be like sparring very, very rough, like like ninety percent, um, and, and with egos too. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. yeah. Trying to trying to uh, out fight the the uh, their team. You know what I mean? And uh, um, and only only hold back when you think you really caught somebody in the nose. You're like, oh, are you okay? All right, cool. Bam, bam, and keep, keep going. going. Then. Yeah, but. Um, Man, I learned so much during that. And Terry Gay, uh, every once in a while, he would, he would, he would hit the ring with us, and just he could hit, he could hit me at will anytime he wanted. He was so fast, and and I hated that. <laughs> he was long, he was long and tall and skinny, and uh, and he he was just so fast. You know, I couldn't even see it coming. I just be like, bam, God dang it, bam, motherfucker. <laughs> um, but anyway, I remember when I did the Tough Man contest. Uh, I was schooling with the Sheik and I thought that the Sheik would be upset that I did that because he had such an onerous contract that said any bookings I take would go through him for the first two years. And he owned me at that time while I was making the payments to him. And I thought if he found out that I that I was doing the tough man contest, that he would look at it, you know, like I was being unfaithful to him, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's I remember being scared of that. And then thinking like, wow, I, I kind of felt like I was in a Y, like a crossroads where um, I could maybe pursue either one. You know, I was thinking, let's see, let's just do both and uh, see see what happens. And um, in wrestling, you know, just took off. Yeah, yeah. How did the Sheik react when you when you figured out you were in the tough band? I don't think I ever told him. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. Not, I don't remember ever having the conversation. Yeah. Okay. I did, I did two of them. No, I did three of them actually. But the first year, um, I did the I. Um, no, I went to the one in Battle Creek, and then I was like, "Whoa, I can hang with these guys! Holy crap! I gotta!" And then the one in Kalamazoo was a couple months later. Uh, I think ours was in December, and then in Kalamazoo was in March. So that's I went into that. I entered that one in March, and that must have been um, ninety. Yeah, I mean, I have the trophy. That's what it says. <laughs> and uh, um, and yeah, I was. It, that's the year that I was, you know, doing my first uh, dozen matches with Sheik and still schooling with him. So, um, but I, I mean, I told Sabu, but it was we had, we had a lot of secrets that so we wouldn't tell Sheik because we didn't we didn't want to get him mad at us. Right, right. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember thinking, you know, that hey, you know what? If I get a, an opportunity to do like professional kickboxing or something and can get paid for it or whatever, then cool. Same with wrestling. That, that's how I felt at that, at that time. And um, it wasn't long after that, I guess that wrestling started like really picking up and then USWA is like four matches a week. And when that was over, I'm like, where's the next territory? Where's the next one? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. What a, fascinating lifestyle though trying to live that mma life and, or you know any taking any of those sorts of classes is like it's a commitment and uh it definitely takes a lot of used to it so you don't want to go into that half-hearted no no, way. no you don't you'll learn soon enough if you do <laughs> yeah but a lot of guys do you know there are a lot of guys that, like it's their dream to have one fight i just want to get in the cage you know just do it one time and yeah for the rush or whatever and you know that's that's almost like doing it half-hearted when you think about the guys that just train all year round and are in a whole different, they're like a whole different species, you know, the conditioning and uh, their, their reaction time and just, just everything is like peak, you know, but 
but I guess you can get there. You yeah, know? yeah. We can all be at our best. Absolutely. It's funny when I go to the gym and I'm like hitting the bag. It's like I'm so I feel so slow when I do it, and then I'm see when I go up there, I see somebody else like hitting sparring with somebody and stuff like that, and they're just rapid fast, and I'm just like, geez, how fuck far am I behind on all this? Stuff? <laughs> it's just like holy yeah. shit, kind of puts you in a humbling position. But hey, you gotta have someone show you how to do it. If you had that, you had training or no, no training? training, no training at all. I just kind of like hit the bag. Um, uh, luckily an old boxer guy was kind of watching me and he's like, Hey, keep your elbows in a little bit more. And so that kind of, and I thought I was keeping my elbows in, but yeah. I wasn't. So then it helped. So I was kind of like, I got to watch some videos and definitely like they have classes there. So I might, I might dabble in that at some point. So yeah, the thing, uh, most likely, most likely, uh, you're too tense mm -hmm. and, uh, and your arms are, are, are flexing while you're hitting and that shit slows you down. Like to be fast. You know, as Bruce Lee says, you must be like water, but it's true. Like I used to, I used to always do the grab the quarter, you know, out of your hand trick. Someone put a quarter in and I'd be like, bam, and grab the quarter out. I haven't done that in so long. And uh, my wrists uh, sometimes don't move as much as they used to, but I, that's something I learned after. Well, actually, <laughs> I learned that when I was training for the second Tough Man contest because the guy, James Williams, that was the photographer from the first tough man contest and the referee's brother. I started training with that guy and he taught me all these weird unorthodox things. One of them was how to grab a quarter out of somebody's hand before they can close their hand. And I got so good at it. You know, that was my trick, my party trick. And I would uh, have my hands way down on my side and have their hand up by my face, you know, be like, bam. But it, you have to be so loose though in order to do it. And when you learn that you'll be able to punch way faster. You know what? And I think you're 100% right on that because when I'm hitting the bag, I can feel my whole arm tense. Like, you know, it's yeah. all flexed and everything like that. It's, so still, it's still a good workout, but you're not going to okay. hit it as fast. Okay. I'm going to be more cognizant of that. Wow. I already got a lesson. All right. Um, okay. Uh, before we get on to our subject, I did want to ask, uh, I kind of probably, I think I know the answer, but since it's news relevant right now and stuff like that, they're the PWI 500 grout release today. Oh, I thought you were going to go with the alien bodies that they uh, introduced. The what? <laughs> I didn't even know about this. <laughs> <laughs> Two alien corpses. What? I got to send it to you. You got to send it to me. We'll talk about that next Introduce week. Introduced to court. Two, <laughs> two mummified alien corpses that they, they dated. I, I can't remember if they said it to the 30s. I think they said they, they think they found it in Peru. Anyway, yeah, more details to come. Is there images? Did they show images, or is it just? Recorded? They showed the bodies in court. They brought they brought little coffins and opened the boxes up in court in Congress. In Congress. Yeah, I gotta. Are you on? Wait, if I send to RVD Pro on Instagram, will you get it? Yeah, if you send it to the pod, the podcast account, I have it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm gonna try and multitask. Okay. Uh -oh. Dude, that's crazy. I'm, oh, man. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that next week because uh, I was completely unaware of that. That's hilarious. That's so how what's, what, else, what else could possibly be relevant to the times? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I was going to ask, how much weight did you put into that as a wrestler? Did you even care? Did it even really hit on your radar? Or was it just kind of an afterthought? It seems like it's more popular now than it was back more in your gut, like in you know the Attitude Era kind of thing. 
What? What are we talking about? Oh, the pro, the PWI 500, the Pro Wrestling Illustrated. How they oh, 500 wrestlers and stuff like that. Did that ever kind of hit resonate with you guys at all in certain ways? Or, um, yeah, I mean, it was cool to it was cool to be in it for sure. You know what I mean? It's just like, you know, wrestlers are marks. Uh, they used to not be allowed to show it, you know, and now they show it, and it's just like. Uh, you know, if you rank high in it, then uh, it's it's a legit, credible piece of you know piece of uh, documentation. There, if you rank low in it, it's a piece of shit written by a mark doesn't know what he's doing. Right. <laughs> That's how the boys see everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I sent that to you on Instagram, by the way. Okay, sweet. I'll definitely check it out. Hell yeah. Right. But uh, cool. Um, number one this year was Seth Rollins. So. Um, he definitely had quite the resume of, of matches and uh, definitely built up his credibility. So, uh, yeah. You see my gym, right? You see my my gym. I got all these uh, magazines all around the, the tops of all the walls, the, all the magazines, a bunch of them that, I, that I'm that i on the cover of. There's more, but all the ones I can fit uh, on all my walls in my gym because I got so many magazines with me on the cover of it. That's cool. That's part of our um, – our, validation of our collective body of work you know is shit like that and keeping different merchandise uh that, that has our image on it and stuff that's that's um for us you know that's really cool that's looking at that shit and saying cool man look at look at me out there in pop culture i'm making ways brother <laughs> <laughs> and you know what i think that's being on the cover of a pro wrestling magazine, like like a pro wrestling illustrator, or the wrestler, or any of those ones that publications back in the day, I think that would have been like the piss on resistance, if you will, like of like, hey, that's pretty fucking cool, you know, because it's like that is a piece of like history almost there, you know, for the magazine and for yeah. you know, the work that you do. So and, and the magazines used to be huge, oh, yeah, yeah, way more, you know. Before the internet, that was like um, a, a way bigger industry as one could imagine. Right. Oh, man. I would get so amped up going to the grocery store and finding the wrestler and getting the posters and all that shit. So, yeah. Now, now just print work in, in general is something that has been uh, passed by. And although it still remains, it sets a small remnant of what it used to be that Playboy magazine isn't even a thing anymore. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and that was the shit. So uh, I used to love going uh, to the store with my mom and just waiting at the magazine rack while she was shopping. And I'd look at comic books and I'd look at wrestling magazines. Hell yeah. Comic books, Mad Magazine, Crack Magazine, all that shit. Was yeah. Awesome. yeah. It's a lost art now. <laughs> They're still there, just like DVDs. You know, for years they've been saying, "Oh, DVDs are dying out. Don't invest in them." They're they're still around, you know, but it's just not what it used to be. <laughs> no, I, I have a lot of wrestling DVDs too, and I'm happy I still have them because it's like some of that stuff doesn't them. stay on yeah. the network, or the music changes. Obviously, they have the rights, and like you miss out on that. So I'm like, I'm happy I still got that shit. And, and they're still selling DVDs at Walmart. They're still putting new shit out, you know? So it's mm -hmm. like years ago, they were acting like they were done. When Blu-ray came out, they were like, yeah. DVDs are done. <laughs> it was 10 years ago, at least. Mm -hmm. I guess and they've been done, collecting yeah. VHSs now, too, you know? All that's coming at, like, is still, you know, 
Understood. I don't know about VHS. <laughs> There's some who's people release, who's releasing shit on VHS. That's a, well, I I guess that's a fair point, but I think people are still collecting them. Is what I mean, though. Like they'll go right. back and collect them. Some some weird people, maybe. I don't. <laughs> maybe yeah yeah. <laughs> I got my whole career on VHS, and I'm afraid my tapes are just going to deteriorate and rip. But um, yeah, YouTube Chris actually has copied uh, uh, some of them, but I got boxes and boxes of it. And I don't even have a. A VCR, but also, you know, you put that in sometimes and it eats the tape and it's like, right. fuck, that's irreplaceable. That was, that was 1994 fucking Washington, North Carolina, RVD versus Gorgeous George the third. Where am I going to get that? <laughs> Where the fuck am I going to find that? <laughs> Manny Fernandez made an appearance on that one. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he did. <laughs> All right. So it's back to the wrestler spotlight. What we did this several weeks ago. And initially, uh, we did Tommy Dreamer. I think it was our episode two. And so we're going to pick up where we last left off, which is appropriate for this week because it's around the ECW, uh, WCW invasion. So um, before I get to that, though, um, I did want to ask about Tommy Dreamer as a creative mind backstage during the ECW time. I know he's pretty big part of the backstage uh scene there but how how much kind of creative input did he have in regards to how the show is executed in certain things or was he a valuable opinion backstage a lot of the times during that era if you remember um he 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 was definitely someone that um I think maybe like when I'm, I'm I'm thinking like maybe if some of the house shows, especially in the 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 later part of the window when I was there, I think sometimes Paul wouldn't be there and Tommy would be taking his place. Okay. Yeah. So he had that much. Uh, he had that much power, <laughs> but he was that much uh, that much office, you know, and 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 that much in touch with Paul. Um, you know, Bubba was close to, uh, and, and Taz, like all those guys that lived in New York, I feel like they were um, part of the office and keeping, keeping things moving along with Paul, whether it's ordering the t-shirts or, um, or uh, I don't know, even I like, get keeping the TV going, you know, to, to an extent, but they, I think that they all had, um, had a, a lot, a lot of us say so in in the direction of. I don't wanna, I don't know if I want to say everything, but at least the parts that, that that Paul could use help with the day to day kind of operation of it all in certain aspects of it. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. Uh, did you ever have kind of uh, any work that you did backstage that you're like uh, it's kind of like a added assignment to you or anything like that when it came to ECW or like you. If you would you take onus or like jump in on something, anything stand out to you in that regard? No, no, you know, like uh, um, I'm in charge of me. If somebody wants some advice or something, then I'm always there for it, you know. But yeah. uh, that's about as far as that goes. That's about it. All right. Well, cool. So yeah, July 9th, two thousand one, uh, WWE Raw. Paul Heyman formed an ECW alumni group for one night only. That consisted of. Tommy Dreamer, Rob Van Dam, Lance Storm, Mike Awesome, Taz, Raven, Rhino, Just Incredible, and the Dudley Boys. 
Then Heyman says that the WWF invasion just got extreme and that ECW will take on WWF and WCW. By the end of the night, it was a setup, and Heyman was actually in cahoots with Shane McMahon and the WCW the whole time. So, could you believe it? How did you feel getting into that thing? Were you guys pretty pumped? What I know there was the aspect that, that kind of came into play, like, hey, it's kind of shark-infested waters maybe with you know a lot of the top stars here, and you're gonna, you guys got to kind of prove your own metal when it comes to certain set, stuff like that. Were you overall pretty excited about this uh, opportunity and stuff just being there on the main stage? You're, I, so you're talking about 2001, right? 2001, when, I, when you guys show up in WWE, you and Tommy Dreamer, like, invade. Yes. So, so for me, like, I already knew that I was coming to WWE, right? And in my mind, I felt like this was something that I had to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because there wasn't anywhere else to go if I wanted to continue being a TV wrestler in the United States at that time. But it wasn't something that I understood was going to be really better for me um, artistically. I thought they were going to change me, erase my past, call me whatever they want, you know. And, and so I was nervous about all that stuff, you know. And then so when uh, I found out, when I showed up and Tommy Dreamer threw me an ECW shirt, that we were going to be representing ECW, all of a sudden I felt validated. I keep using that word, but it's so proper. It's like the third time I've said that on tonight's show, but uh, that was totally the best word, you know, validation. Like now I'm Rob Van Dam and you're adding depth to my career instead of wiping it out. Like that's a, that's a night and day difference, you know, like that was, um, rewarding to try to look for another word. And it was awesome because it accredited me with everything I had done as RVD in ECW prior to coming to WWE. It, it validated ECW in itself. Uh, and the fans loved it, even though Vince thought that he trained them to... Uh, to know what ECW was and then to chant ECW. Either way, it was a lot of fun and what a great way to transition and come into the new world. It was pretty exciting too as a fan. I remember being a watcher of ECW but not super like tuned into the product. It was like on my radar, but it was like I would only catch it once a week and if I did, it was late at night and all that kind of thing. Is Barb Barbie's hanging out there? <laughs> yeah, that's her spot. That's the way to do it, too. <laughs> My cat's lingering around somewhere. But, <laughs> um, but it was kind of neat because then this was like I was aware of who RVD was. I knew who Tommy Dreamer was. And, like, I already knew they were stars, but you guys coming into it was like, holy shit, this is fucking big time. This feels big time as a, as a fan. So, um, yeah. Much bigger crowd. Much bigger crowd. And the reactions, too, like we'll talk about this in a little bit, but holy smokes, like, especially for you, damn, some uh, pretty good shit. Um, holy smokes indeed. Mm -hmm. So, uh, 
I did notice. So I was looking at uh, Dreamer's uh, backlogger profile on Online World of Wrestling, and so they have a recap of like his matches that they were going down, like it's chronologically. During this time, I happened to notice he went on a pretty big losing streak while he, when he first started off on there. Um, do you remember at all if there was like a certain perception of Dreamer behind in the locker room, or did he just seem like the the right guy kind of for the job in a lot of ways because he was he seems pretty uh, adaptable, I guess. If you so with WWE, yeah, with WWE, with WWE, most most of the guys seem to know him already, mm-hmm. and he was still in the office click. You know, mm-hmm. uh, matter of fact, he became a producer slash agent, and 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 was part of the meetings. You know, and would he's one of the ones that would tell me, you know, like if. Uh, if somebody uh, buried me in the meeting, uh, you'd fill you in. <laughs> yeah, and everybody likes Tommy. I can't imagine anybody really having an issue with him. He's 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 always been um, very likable. And as far as him being on a losing streak, that's kind of part of who. Tommy's character really I mean he's he he you know when you when you look at his uh his pathology and his ECW story even like the fans would always be behind him but he would often be the guy that's really getting the shit kicked out of him. You know, the guy that's getting slammed through the tables and the guy that's, that's getting uh, the chair uh, cracked over his broken heel. And, uh, and, and that's kind of part of what he does. You know, if he, if he, if he scores a win, it's kind of like a huge deal. Really? He's, he's not like the guy on top that's, crushing all the competition, winning all the time. He's the guy that the fans really pull for that really gets abused. And, you know, sometimes he might slip one over. Other times, you know, he he, he fights strong and uh, quite often ends up looking at the lights at the end of the night. Yeah. He's kind of the everyman in a lot of ways, especially like with ECW and coming into that. It's like people sure. can relate to him and, yeah, fighting from behind, fighting from underneath and making it happen. So, no, that's fat. he would like that i said that it's okay yeah yeah. baba busts his balls all the time on busted open radio (laughs) i think they call themselves the fat and furious on there so they oh that's funny yeah they've always done that Mm -hmm. all right so may 13th 2002 on raw this i want to get your take on because i I was i remember this uh you know as a teenager and be like what the fuck are they doing with tommy (laughs) so tommy began a fresh new angle in a vignette called a, a day in the life of Tommy dreamer plays. And so what it is, is we see Tommy dreamer brushing his teeth and his dog's teeth with the same brush, drinking toilet water and other disgusting things. And then on May 27th on the next week on raw, Tommy dreamer, let everyone know that he's just a regular guy. And then he eats a hot dog off the floor. Um, then later on undertaker comes out and forces dreamer to drink a plastic cup full of tobacco spit and then beats the crap out of him. Um, what do you think about this thing? And uh, do you remember Tommy's reaction at all to any of that? Uh, well, 
I thought it was stupid. Yeah, sure. I thought somebody was trying desperately to catch the coattails of the jackass genre. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Which was very popular. Tommy would do stuff to make everyone pop, pick a cockroach up off the ground and put it in his mouth. So we'd go, ew, gross. Pick something out of the garbage and, and take a bite out of it. Like Tommy would do that anyway. So it was kind of like really him. But I thought it was uh, uh, that, that the stuff that he told me that he was filming, I just thought it sounded like really, oh, yeah. really stupid. Uh, and much like what I thought of Crime Time, even even then, you know, before I really um, gone from being a caterpillar to a butterfly in my, in my life, uh, <laughs> I still even even back then when I was rather immature, I remember thinking, man, I hope a lot of kids don't take after this act here and start following up and trying to outdo this shit because that don't sound like a good idea at all. He said he was eating a hot dog out of a toilet. Like what? Why? Yeah. I remember him like being at the barber, getting his hair cut and then eating his own hair. I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) It's like, what is going on here? Yeah. I don't, I, I don't see that translating to money. Mm -mm. I think around the same time, but I could be off chronologically, but it seemed like they were doing a lot of weird things, you know, like I think they were doing the HLA back then. Yeah, that came a little later, but yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So I know they were like really trying to find the right ways to really push it and be edgy. And I think this is maybe a failed attempt at that. Yeah, no. And that's a great point thinking about Jackass because, yeah, that was like, that was super popular at the time. And, uh, you know, maybe they were trying to come off of that, you know? So, okay, you mentioned it. Tommy Dreamer, February 2003, he joined the writing staff on the Raw brand and continued to be an in-ring performer. Um, I'm going to jump ahead here a little bit, though. Uh, talked about One Night Stand, obviously, before. How big was Dreamer's involvement with that project? Uh, were you, or were you and Heyman the primary proponents, or did Dreamer have his hands on that whole project, too, of kind of developing and growing? You know, I really don't know. Um, that's a great question. I have the impression that he helped more than I ever knew. I wasn't communicating with him a lot. Mm -hmm. I would talk to Vince and even more so I would talk to Paul and then Paul would talk to Vince and maybe that's when Dreamer was in on those meetings and maybe that gave two votes for some of the ideas. I'm really not sure, but I know that I pitched it and I went around and asked all the boys, you know, if they would participate, if I could get Vince to do this, because he was really, really warm on it. And I went around and asked everybody, wrote, wrote down a big list, you know, pen and paper of everyone I could think of. That's right, you know, Chris Jericho, um, you know, uh, Rey Mysterio, like Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, everyone, like everyone I could think of that was that had been through there. Um, and and then you know, at a certain point, I, I I almost feel like I almost had to like 
handed over because uh, once it was a go and they accepted it and we were doing this, um, then it was all of their regular suit and ties meeting and, and, and talking about everything. So mostly I would get any info uh, from those meetings from talking to Paul. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, he was more of a, a guy that was kind of helping out, like Paul, with, you know, getting stuff across and stuff, like you said. Um, Maybe so. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, you guys did tag up on several occasions in the new ECW, but after you guys leaving uh, WWE, both you guys eventually, part, like, you know, leave, making your exits, uh, you guys didn't cross paths until TNA. Uh, I think in the ring. At least that's what I saw on the on the website there. Me and Dreamer. You and Dreamer, like after. So you guys did the obviously ECW came back as you know after one night stand and all that stuff, and you guys competed on that for a while. But then once you once you I think you left obviously at like 2006 or seven was it 2007 I think it was, and then Dreamer eventually left later on. But then you guys met back up in in TNA here, and. Um, so let me see here what it was here. So Tommy Dreamer called out on August 5th, 2010. Tommy Dreamer called out Raven, who cut an amazing promo to hype their final showdown. So uh, then Dreamer, oh, my phone's going off. Dreamer and <laughs> Rob Van Dam defeated the monster Abyss and Raven. Salmon showed up after the match to save Tommy. So that all happened then. Uh, what I wanted to get out was this match, though. So, all right. Here's a question. When was the House of Hardcore match when I wrestled Tommy Dreamer? It might be this one. Oh. So, uh, so this is November 7th, 2010. This is TNA Turning Point. RVD beat Tommy Dreamer, but Tommy Dreamer suffered a wrist injury with his bone sticking out of the skin. Do you remember that? Oh, um, no. No? Okay. I was going to ask about that, but that's fucking crazy. <laughs> Sounds like something Tommy would do. Yes. Um... Okay, yeah, no, so I don't know. that. So uh, the House of Hardcore match, when did that happen? Because I don't have that in my notes here. Maybe in between there. I don't know. That was Tommy's promotion, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was at the ECW Arena? No, it wasn't. It wasn't at the ECW Arena because I remember, like, the bleachers, and uh, we went up the bleachers. It was some other building. But um, I, I don't know when that was. It could have been before – or after that TNA run, I don't know. I think his the House Hardcore promotion itself that ran. I think afterwards, because I remember being at one of those shows in like 2015 at the ECW Arena. He had one of the the shows going there. That was a fun promotion too. They had, it was just a whole divert. Like it had ECW talents, but it had modern talents at the time too. It was a good hodgepodge of mixture of stars and stuff they were fun he did a good job of that so yeah it was definitely before then because my return to wwe was like 2013 and 14 14. so it was probably in between maybe that those two aspects of it maybe i'm not sure maybe Mm. or you missed one here i did and this isn't youtube chris's fault these are my own notes so uh he, he is not at fault here at all so i take onus on all this um Tommy Dreamer's value in ECW and as a wrestling mind. Is there any stark philosophical differences between you and Tommy as far as like maybe how wrestling should be executed or is executed? Um, or do you guys are pretty much on the same page, you guys think, overall, when it comes to executing wrestling? 
We agree on um, a lot, and we, we we disagree on some. Mm-hmm. Nothing sticks out, though, t- in, in regards to me. Nothing sticks out. I just, yeah, I don't know if it's something, you know, for public consumption. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just, it's, a, it, it's um, see if I can think of a way of explaining it without feeling like I'm, um, <clears throat> well, okay, so, like, uh, something we agree on, I can tell you. Sure. Uh, uh, they do that stupid, I think it's stupid, and so does Tommy, that move now, I guess it came from Mexico, I don't know, but where, like, like my opponent bounces off the ropes and comes at me, and I run right by him, and then I hit the ropes that he just ran off of, and then he stops and turns around, I think, and, and then I come at him with whatever, like, I don't know what the name is for that. It's not a pass by. It's not like it's not like when you you know when when you when you sidestep somebody and throw and, and push them on their back. We've mm-hmm. always done that. This one, you run like right by them, and we had this conversation uh, during my last Impact run where that came up, where I was saying that that I don't approve of that move. That's stupid. And Tommy said <clears throat> he was uh, in the ring with somebody that was saying, you know, that they wanted to do that move. <clears throat> and he said, go ahead and do it. And he said, the guy bounced off the ropes, and when he tried to run by him, he said he just waist-locked him and grabbed him. <laughs> That's great. I'm like, why wouldn't you? Right. Yeah, it's it weird. Makes no sense if you don't do something like that. <laughs> yeah, so I'll give you that one. I like that one. I like that one. Yeah, I I appreciate that you don't actually do the other, The other thing had something to do with how much somebody big like Moose would sell, you know, like – Moose is wanting to do a 360 bump from a clothesline. And it's like, dude, no. Like, that doesn't do nothing for you, in my opinion. Yeah, in Tommy, yeah. In Tommy's opinion, you know, hey, you know, you're, it's okay. You're your former world champion. You know, you you can uh, clothesline that hard, you know. <laughs> uh, but um, overall, though, you know, we're, we're both old school. He's... He's always been a little bit more on the comedy side, you know, like I, for me, I consider it comedy and, you know, just, you know, he's always getting it in the balls and, and stuff like that, that kind of things. But also the, the, the cookie sheet stuff, you know, like that's not something that I, my, my weapon of choice, if I'm going to get into a, a battle with somebody, a cookie sheet or a pie pan is the last fucking last thing on I'm the going. list. Definitely the farthest down. Might as well give me a piece of aluminum foil. It's exactly. Gonna hurt <laughs> as bad. And everybody knows that, you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't get that. <clears throat> but nope. okay. No, I like that. <laughs> I'm with you though. Worst weapons cookie sheet. It, it was great when you were kids because you could hit it and make a lot of noise, but uh, for the ring for wrestling. Are you gonna, yeah, and then when you do it when you're a kid, you know what it feels like. So then, what are you thinking when two big, you know, 250 pound muscle man warriors hit themselves with it? You think they're really gonna knock themselves out with it? Yeah, you're like, oh, that shouldn't have felt that bad. It made a lot of noise, but that didn't, that didn't look like it hurt. <laughs> so, all That's right, <laughs> Rob Ray and Dan match is a fun one. I'm excited because it, it's a pretty cool one. I Oh, I kind of forgot about, but then it's like once you I watched it, it was like, man, it took me right back to that time of like how exciting it kind of was. And even at this juncture, too, it was like the times were changing because Steve Austin was a heel. 
And uh, so this, I'm talking No Mercy to uh, October 21st, 2001. This happened. Uh, the Alliance is in full force. Uh, Steve Austin and RVD are a part of the Alliance, while Kurt Angle here is a part of the WWE. And so, out Rob, I actually have the short video promo that they had uh, for you guys uh, building to this match. So we'll, we'll pop that up here real quick. But it's uh, it definitely takes it sets oh, the tone. Yeah. It sets the tone for it all. So here we go. Okay. See if I can pop it up. BD, you know, when I was gone, I watched you. I watched you give advice to members of the Alliance. You tried to take them under your wing like Stone Cold Steve Austin did. You tried to be a leader. R-E-D! 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 Stone Cold Steve Austin is back. Stone Cold Steve Austin hey. has regained the WWF title. I'm back to take these men and women under my wing. I got a piece of advice for you, RVD. I want you to keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. You got a lot of future. You got a lot of potential. Mick Foley's back on SmackDown! See, it turns out that Linda McMahon thought that I, I would make a pretty good choice as your new WWF commissioner. Well, I'll tell you what. The fact is that I like to give the fans the best damn main events that I possibly can. What I'm talking about, and no mercy, is a triple threat. Mm -hmm. Kurt Angle, Stone Cold, and RVD. So I guess, RVD, it's all up to you. What's it going to be, boy? Yes or no? Come boy. Far yeah. back for me <laughs> to ignore the advice of our leader, Stone Cold Steve Austin. I know when for me. About me, you do not want me to pass up this opportunity. I'm in. Help me in. You are either with me or you are against me. Both men are down. Austin and Angle are in. Hey, wait a minute. That's Rob Van Dam. Uh oh, Rob, what are you doing? Who's it going after? Who are you going to hit? Hurt. I turned at the last second. What a jump. Miss your test. Miss your test. Walks through that door. We're gonna celebrate that little bastard right here tonight. I enjoyed meeting with you, dude. Who's he talking to? Who are you talking to, Rob? I don't know. I I hope you like my hardcore championship belt. We'll find out. That level that RVD was in is still here. Hey, what Vince. the hell? Vince? You won't even return my phone call now. Wow. Oh, jeez, Vince, come on. With me, or you are against me. Hey, you said that before. Right. You get some new material here. You would go ahead and bloody mouth. Here's all bloodied up. Hey, what? Hey. Rude. Very rude. Oh, I think I know what's coming here. Look at that. 
He deserved it. He did. Now Vince knows how to do the RVD point, unlike Linda. <laughs> got it yeah, down. Vince <laughs> pays attention. He pays attention. I bet that's when I busted Kurt's chin open, probably. Oh, probably, yeah. So, really set the tone. I thought it was super cool because it's like, uh, it's, you know, you think about... Hardcore champion in there with Kurt Angle and Steve Austin. What the fuck? Where's the... Where's the squirting mustard and the uh, the mop in the face and the plunger? Or the the ball pit? Where? Why aren't you guys wrestling in a ball pit at McDonald's or something? But who knows? Missed opportunity, I think. But I will say, I think it really sets the tone. Obviously, people think that Steve Austin's heel turn was not the right move to make ultimately, but he was such a great heel at this, like being the paranoid world champion, and like you're kind of stuck in the middle of it all. And the crowd's behind you out of a lot of people there. Uh, and so, uh, and, and Kurt Angle's representing WWE. A lot of fascinating elements coming into this one. So, um, what was, did you kind of remember any of this mindset of what you were kind of being in this title picture at that point in time? Or anything really stand out to you uh, for this moment in time for you? Um, really just having good matches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know what? This match was great. I really liked it because, um, and I will say, this is so, Dave Meltzer here sets the tone. I I pulled from the Observer around this time. So this is from the, uh, a week later. So the October 29th, 2001 Observer. So this is for the Survivor Series he's talking about, which should be the biggest money match with the highest stipulations in the history of wrestling because it's the Alliance versus WWE. But it will come nowhere close to that level. A match with WAF versus the Alliance with the losing promotion having to disband. So what does this all mean? To give the Alliance its badly needed credibility since it's lost virtually all key matches? And with the exception of Rob Van Dam. No newcomer has been booked in a way to get them over. The Alliance was destroyed, including all four championships on the lowest rated non-holiday edition Raw. The rating is proof of everything everyone knows. This angle is dead because WCW and ECW are never really necessarily giving wins and credibility. Titles mean nothing, although MSG last night, last week with Austin Angle rating were the ultimate proof of that. People are sick of the McMahon family talking about being on television. Make matters worse. They aren't so keen on The Rock, Austin, or anyone else used to carry the promotion. Now I will say when watching this No Mercy match, the crowd was super over, (laughs) like on everybody there. Like Austin was over as a heel, everything like that. So a question I wanted to ask, you're in this all this new ecosystem, everything. Rock and Austin were the hottest two babyface acts going into WWE during the Attitude Era and stuff like that. Rock even had success as a heel early on. Uh, did you feel Austin as a heel? Did it feel out of place, or wasn't that too much of a warrior concern for you? Did you kind of feel it fit, think it fit the bill at that point in time, Austin being a heel? Mm. I don't really remember having too strong of feelings about it. I mean, it seemed like the crowd was behind him anyway, right? Yeah. So definitely tell didn't, didn't really feel like a, from what I remember, I don't think it felt so much like he was a heel except the crowd, you know, every time he would take a a break and they'd say what which i hated oh, <laughs> i know it was fun for them what yeah. uh but he started them doing that and, and they would like to since he's a heel then it's more fun interrupting than if he's a baby face and disrespecting him but uh yeah i don't know it was um 
but then I guess I was a heel, so he was my leader when yeah. he was a heel, right? Uh, you were kind of the. I, just, I remember, like you know, I just wanted to wrestle and have good matches. I, you know, when I think about it, this whole time, I think about the the milk truck. And us, you know, having to slip and slide, you know, getting sprayed with milk. I hated that stuff. You yeah, know? yeah. Now, now I can see the bigger picture, but it's it, we can only see so far from our eyes, you know. Mm -hmm. And being in the middle of it, I hated that. I hated when we had to do the the music video for um, the Royal Rumble Survivor Series. Oh yeah, Royal Rumble. That's what it was. story. <laughs> Yeah, the way I hated that. I hated that. We had to sing and stuff. And I was like, man, I just want to get out there and be athletic and show off and try and win my fans over. And, and, and you know, so the competitive mindset that I was in felt like during a lot of this time that I was playing a bit of a, a, a stooge for a lot of it. You know what I mean? That's how it felt. There was, I know initially when I was seeing it, there was kind of that aspect that came with it when the Alliance showed up. And it was like, okay, they're all kind of backdrop almost to Steve Austin and stuff. But ultimately, like, you were somebody that was getting over, <laughs> like, big time, you could tell. And uh, the crowd was receiving it. And clearly, like, this match was an indicator that they were thinking highly of what you were capable of doing as a main eventer, too, at this point, too. So all that kind of really played out. Um, so... Meltzer continues to write, this is an interesting piece he wrote. So I want to get your opinion on this. The decision for Van Dam to do the job. So you're the one that took the pin at the end of this match. Uh, did not think it was a big deal when I watched it at all. Because, I mean, you hit your five-star frog splash. Shane McMahon interfered. There was reasoning for it to happen. Probably Mel took a pedigree. <laughs> took a pedigree, yes. Uh, but so Angle, instead of Angle doing the job, you did the job. Meltzer says, it's likely one of those political deals. There's been a lot of talk in the dressing room before the show that this would be the night Van Dam got his payback. There's a lot of resentment of Van Dam's push, particularly because many see it as Paul Heyman's manipulation, and Heyman has both of his friends and foes politically on both sides of the dressing room and office. Adding salt to the wound is that Van Dam gets such a great crowd reaction every night, and that since the Van Dam push has started, business has been way down. Now, the crowd reaction does not indicate that whatsoever, I will say. Van Dam opening people up the hard way so often hasn't helped those going to be resentful of a newcomer that the crowd took so strongly to even before the company reacted to it and started making him a major part of the show. All this basically allows those who believe Van Dam should and shouldn't be given the huge push with plenty of legitimate arguments on either side, which makes it even more of an issue. Now, I want to – was there – Kind of that, I know you were kind of always thinking about the competitive aspect of it all, and certainly the politics you hate about it all. Uh, was there that dynamic that you felt around that time too, or were you just kind of riding on this? Because this is like, you know, this is a validation for what you've been doing, I think, in a lot of ways. So that's the appearance I got about watching this match back. I just can't, I, I, I can't stop thinking like, Imagine if Paul wasn't there, mm -hmm. what what they would have done with me. Like if I went there in 2001 and Paul wasn't there to, to fight for me, they I would have had a complete different career, complete different. And who knows what it would have been. But, you know, we don't live in alternate universes. But um, he was always, you know, every, everything that everybody 
enjoyed about my career and stuff. You know, a lot of it was because Paul was there fighting for me, and they, and uh, and I know they resented it. I've heard um, and interviews from some of the other guys talking about it. You know that um, they resented that Paul was so pro RVD, but he's the only one that that understood me. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, but I don't know. I I know I was over with the crowd, but I mean I don't you know I don't know that that I could sell out huge hundred thousand arena you know uh, seat arenas and shit. I, I I you know I I don't have the ego to you know to say this is this is the only chance I you know I just need to prove it and this is my chance to do that and you know like I don't now anyway I don't have that kind of ego back then. Um, I don't know. Hopefully I had enough sense to just uh, be at my best and get where that got me. And I do remember thinking that too, you know, mm-hmm. like I remember Steve Austin saying to me, kid, they're about to strap a rocket ship to your back. You know, you know what that means? And I was like, um, sounds good. Yeah. Sounds positive. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I remember thinking like it's business though isn't it you know like what am i supposed to be thankful like it was weird my thoughts were weird at that time because i thought like look everyone's got an rvd signed i'm over as fuck with everybody and and i'm supposed and i'm supposed to say thank you so much for doing the right thing like that that's what that's kind of how i how i thought about it you know what i mean gauging how over i was from my perspective, I thought, what else are you going to do except for try to capitalize on it? And I very often felt like they weren't interested in doing that. So it was kind of balanced out between the good and bad moments. Right, sure. And, like, this match was a pretty good indicator of, like, hey, them having confidence in, like, uh, the belief in you. Because uh, there was the aspect, like, you were getting spots in. You were hitting – you hit the five-star frog splash. You were going to get – like, there was the evidence for the fan to see that, hey, he could have won the match right there be, uh, if Shane McMahon didn't interfere. No, if – yeah, if it was Shane McMahon that interfered. And um, – no, Vince, I think. Whoever it was. Either way, you would have got the pinfall or whatever in the match. But I think um, an aspect that I, like, just kind of thought was just fascinating was just – you were super over and that the, you know, Austin, like working with somebody like Austin and stuff like that, you were mixing it up with the main event stars of that day. And you were the main eventer there and you were on the rise. So it's like, um, yeah, after this was all said and done, it almost like I wanted more Austin versus RVD. You know what I mean? Like a one-on-one kind of aspect. Do you remember there kind of being like, was there a hope that you were going to have a program with them or did, was there any thoughts to that kind of a, I, I feel like I did. I'm trying to think too. I know you got some clean pins. You wrestled the Rock and got some pins against him. I know. Um, I also uh, wrestled Steve Austin, and I have, and I'm almost positive that I that I have a win on him too. But I remember giving him the Van Daminator and busting him open. Oh, really? Okay. I think that was during a, a singles match. Yeah, I think maybe. Yeah, that might have been like something. I I'll have to look that up because I definitely. I almost wanted a longer term, a long term program with you guys. It just seemed like a. That's the aspect I really liked about it too. Was like Steve Austin was the brawler in the match. You were your own orthodox style that was unique, and then Kurt Angle was like the technical wrestler in it all. So that was a really good compliment to one another in that whole fight too. I thought. I was- yeah. So check this out. One day we're at the arena uh, for a TV, and it's early, early in the day, 
And I, man, my eyes started bothering me and I'm rubbing my eye. I don't know what the fuck it was. Pretty soon my eyes all swollen and it's like, <laughs> like it's, and it's like pussy. And uh, I had to go to an eye doctor and I did this in the daytime, you know, like, and I came back and, um, and I thought there was still a long time before the show was starting, you know, and uh, I was in the gym and uh, my eye was starting to was, was feeling better. I got these eye drops, medical eye drops or whatever. Um, but I remember I like had to go in the darkness. It was weird. It just like killed some hours. Uh, but finally it got better. And then I was in the gym. There was a gym in the arena, and I was—I wanted to work out that day, but I didn't get to because I had to go to the eye doctor. So I thought, well, I'll just get it in now, kill some time. I'm doing some butterflies. Someone comes in. I can't remember who it was that came in. They're like, uh, Rob, they've been calling you down to the ring. I'm like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> They're like, you're supposed to be down to the ring. Like, like I'm like, when? Like, right now. Everyone else was already down there. They're calling for you. I'm like, what? And I put the dumbbells down and like, I, you know, boom, made my way out there. And that's the night that um, Steve Austin uh, started saying, what, do you need to watch? <laughs> really? No way. I so started it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <That's crazy. laughs> was like, you want to give me a watch? Cool. I don't remember what I said, but yeah, that's when he was like, uh, well, well, thanks for joining us, RVD. Can I? You know, can I get you a watch or whatever you say? And that started that, yeah. Because everyone else, the rest of the alliance, everyone was already in the ring. And then I just made my way down there, which was like, you know, fine for my character anyway. Yeah, right. Much. It works out. It worked out with the persona. That's hilarious. Because that, yeah, that became a whole thing with Steve at that point. Was like the watch, watch yeah. and everything. That's great. Um, now, was there, how did Steve ultimately like working with you, do you think? Like, because I know there's there's always talk about him he was obviously he broke his neck like in 97 and he he was kind of always protective of that uh but kurt angle like liked you working snug and everything like that so was there kind of that aspect like that like did steve ultimately like you think like working with you you guys complimented one another really well in the match i I think that he liked working with me Yeah. Yeah. yeah um i remember when i busted him open with the van daminator uh you know, everyone would hold the chair and just kind of like look through it like that. And it hits yeah. it. What's it going to do? You know what I mean? But um, when I saw him after the match, you know, I said, hey, you know, sorry, uh, dude, sorry I busted you open. And, you know, I mean, I knew at this point, you know, I've been busting everybody open. And <laughs> some people were talking bad about me. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> But anyway, I said, oh, dude, sorry, uh, um, you know, I busted you open. And he goes, oh, that's all right. I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Cool. No, I love this match. Um, Meltzer gave it three stars. He said it uh, He said it was a good match. That's- three stars. Three stars. Yeah. And it, he said it was a good match, but it didn't add up to, like, the previous ones that you guys had, I guess, before. I will say I really liked it, the story aspect of it. People were giving it shit because of the McMahon angle at the end because he came out. Uh, it's just, I don't know. I like <laughs> So it was good stuff, Rob. So cool. Um, as far as anything else, do you have any final thoughts that you kind of want to get across on this? Like working with Steve, working with Kurt, anything? Uh, because Steve like, has the same birthday. Do you guys really, really? And Trish. No shit. Wow. And Christina Aguilera and Brad Pitt. 
Oh my other God. people, <laughs> yeah. Other people have that birthday <laughs> <laughs> every Wait, year. What is your birthday? What is it? Uh, twelve eighteen. Twelve eighteen. Okay. Wow. How about? Jeez, man, that's a Hall of Fame birthday right there. Man. Yeah, for real. That's true. All three of us. I share one with AJ Styles and Lex Luger. Nice. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rob. Hey, guess what? It's time to wrap it up. We're gonna do. A little RVDology. Let's do it, dude. Let's do it to it, brother. So here you go. Uh, the yours, my friend. What did we talk about last week? Oh, yeah. Loyalty here. I'll put myself up real quick again. Um, what you got, dude? Did you uh, did I happen to uh, bleed into your week at all last week? Or are you getting too used to these ideology values of mine and uh, kind of just... Let them go in one ear and out the other. No, no. no. So loyalty, I, I've thought about it. It's just like you, you kind of put the aspect in it of thinking about like who should you be loyal to and who kind of like deserves the loyalty in certain ways. And like, you know, a lot of my headspace goes to like I over obsess about a lot of stuff. I have OCD, so I think about a lot of stuff. So if I get focused on a subject, I'll ruminate and ruminate and ruminate and ruminate. And then, like, you get to a point, like, you know, past relationships or you think about other stuff, whether it's with a girl or with friends or anything like that. And it kind of comes to the aspect of, like, geez, how much time am I wasting just spending thinking about this person or thinking about this aspect where it's just, like, I'm putting a lot of loyalty into somebody that might not be thinking the same thing. And it's just, like... What am I getting out of that besides nothing? It's it just like you kind of reflect back on it. It's like, man, I'm, w I'm wasting a lot of time doing that. And so trying to be conscious of that and like realizing like who do you put your loyalty and your, your thought process into, that's really what I factored in a lot throughout this week, especially this week, like throughout this week, especially. So, yeah, Rob, so cool. it's been, been a good nice. Yeah, yeah that, that's good. You know, uh, to add on to that, a lot of people, uh, maybe I almost want to say, I almost want to say that um, at a certain point, all of us are probably most loyal to ourselves. Some mm -hmm. people, some people remain only loyal to themselves. And we talked about those people, DTA, don't trust anyone. Right. And then, when you find love, then sometimes I feel like you can branch out from only being loyal uh, to, to, to yourself, you know, and then, you know, like, let's say like you have kids, you know, then I don't know, like, like I, I'm loyal to, to Katie, obviously. And by being loyal to myself, I know that I'm going to be happiest and I'm taking care of myself best by being loyal to her, you know, so that works like both ways. Uh, when you have kids, then a lot of parents, I feel like they're, they're, they can be more loyal to their kids than they are to themselves because they're sacrificing, giving up time, things, parts of themselves for the benefit of their kids because they love them so much and feel responsible for their happiness and their well-being because they created them, you know. Uh, so like, uh, I feel like it's, it's, it's really useful to know and to think about that, you know, about like, um, who, who you're loyal to, who deserves your loyalty, uh, make sure you're loyal to the right people. And also, you know, who's loyal to you and do you deserve that? Right. That's a great point too. No, Rob, it's, that's been a good one. So, uh, and, and definitely feeling about karma too, is what, as another aspect I, I, 
I've been really taken away with. So, yeah, it's been helpful. My, my values don't expire. They, they, they're lifelong. That's right. They're right. This, uh, they, they have a exist all never-ending shelf life. <laughs> they are timeless. Yeah. They are timeless. Yeah. So especially uh, today, you know, I, I've been getting a lot of these uh, responses saying that I'm helping people, you know, which – I love, you know, I love the, the the thought of that. I take that very seriously because I don't know who else is telling you this shit, you know? And um, <clears throat> I think that uh, a lot of m my stuff can help people if they're willing to, to see things the way that I see them. And, you know, if you don't want to uh, be cool and chill like RVD, then uh, listen and, uh, and then reaffirm your opposite opinions or values or ways of life. Anyway, we talked earlier about um, I wasn't able to see the bigger picture, you know, when I was like in the middle of uh, being on TV, in the middle of a program, competitive, hopes up, disappointment, hopes up, disappointment, the cycle, frustration, all that. A lot of the times if you – just remember, there's always a bigger picture. Sometimes that can get you out of some jams. And uh, basic thinkers aren't able to see the bigger picture because the very first basic level of thinking is survival. And a lot of basic thinkers don't think past that. They have no reason to. And all of their thoughts are about survival. Take, for instance, voting, all right? If there was a vote that was good for everybody in America. Um, but for me, it was going to raise my taxes a little bit. Am I going to vote it down because it's bad for me? Or am I going to see the bigger picture and realize this is way better for the whole country? Pretty sure I know the way that I would vote if there was something that simple to vote on, which there never is. But <laughs> ju just to make a point, though, if you think about it, if you're the other person, then you know that you're you're a basic thinker for sure. And I do know people like that. People that would just vote on what's best for them, even even if it's not best for the majority of everyone's well-being. So if you can think of examples of that, that's what I'm talking about when I say the, the bigger picture. And people that are just focused on themselves, their survival, um, you know, they're, they're going to get their tacos. That's all they know. <laughs> they're going to grab the light preserver on the boat when it's going down and watch everybody else drown. I'm not saying that that's wrong if that's how you think, but uh, I am saying that that's inconsistent with values of a leader you can never be a leader in that kind of position if you're going to save yourself and let everyone else that you're leading go down and you don't have to feel obligated to be a leader when you make your decisions and choices but there's a bigger picture than what you're in i said this earlier think about this we can only see as far as our eyes can see we can only see what's in front of us right now. But this is only part of the picture. There's a much, much bigger picture. Right now, I'm looking all the way back to 2001 to answer these questions. And now I have the foresight of the bigger picture. 
I know what I learned. Uh, I, I understand the business more now. Um, I know the impact that my efforts made on my fans and what it did for my career. I know where my path went. Much bigger picture. At the time, you know, uh, Dom's asking me, how did I feel about this and that? Way back then in 2001, all I had was, was what was right in front of me now. And that's all I can see right now. That's all you can see is where you at right now. So if you got problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 bitches. No problems in a bitch right one. Sorry. No. Um, here's, here's something that, that I learned uh, to deal with problems. And I learned this through martial arts. One of my martial arts instructors, one of the ones that taught me uh, a way to meditate. Not my favorite way to meditate, but one way, and my, and my favorite way to really put everything in perspective. So, you know, he's got the class um, in position. Our eyes are closed. We're trying to relax, right? And, and, he, and he's telling us to picture ourselves bird's eye view from the ceiling. Look at the classroom. There's 12 idiots here with karate geese on. We're looking at the top of their heads, right? Um, you can see everybody in comparison to each other, relatively size per size. Now, boom, zoom back. Look at a few city blocks, right? Now look how small we are compared to that. Now you're seeing several buildings and stuff. Zoom back, boom. Look at Battle fucking Creek. How small are we compared to Battle Creek? Zoom back, look at Michigan. Zoom back, look at the fucking United States, you know? Zoom back and look at the whole fucking earth and think of how tiny and small and insignificant you and your little ass problems are when it comes to the whole big picture. Meaningless. And that meditation exercise is actually taking the time to slowly walk through that and visualize that was one way to teach me my status as far as position and comparison perspectively with the whole fucking planet so dude it sucks that you gotta get your brakes fixed it ain't the end of the fucking world the world's gonna keep going on so that's one way um that maybe can help people if they really think that everything is closing in on them and that everything is in front of their face it's not you only see so far because your vision is not limitless but there's a way bigger picture. <clears throat> the thing I like about music is that it makes Katie so happy. And you know what? It makes lots of people happy. Now, personally, I'm not a big fan of music. I'm not going to normally turn the radio on in the car just to have background subliminal control over my brain so that I'm thumping to a beat and, and, and I would rather be of free will and cut that off personally I'm a platypus that's what I do but I would never say I don't want there to be any music people love it it makes so many people happy and it's such a big part of, of culture bigger picture 
not just myself. And by the way, that's what people do with weed. You know, marijuana, we know it can help so many people, especially people that are that are going through chemotherapy because of uh, cancer or uh, wasting away diseases. Like, we know it can help them. But people are like, oh, I don't smoke weed, so I don't care about that. They're not looking at the big picture, and they don't need to feel obligated to. We all choose what we focus on, what we pay attention to, where our interests are diverted and diversified. That's that's up to us. And, and, and I do get that. I care about weed. When I decided to be an advocate way back in 98, I didn't know that the bigger picture was that I was going to be replacing a possible image of being an intellectual with one of being stupid because I used cannabis. I didn't understand the bigger picture that most people in society still thought that. Dude, he's fried. He don't make sense. Bro, he, he's wasted, dude. He's blitzed. Dude, would I have still put my energies into advocating? Yeah, because I knew that people were killing themselves with cigarettes. And what I knew was that cannabis would elongate life expectations. People still don't know that, but I do. Anyway, I sacrificed all of that for the greater good. You know, I've said before, I would quit smoking if everybody that really needed it could have better access to it. For me, it's not about getting uh, getting blitzed and wasted. I, I often say, you know, when people ask me uh, what I enjoy about cannabis, is it, do I feel the inflammation that other athletes, I'm sorry, the, 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 um, do I feel that it helps with inflammation? Like a lot of athletes for years have, have always uh, acclaimed. I, I don't know if I feel that, but I feel um, my spiritual vibration um, ascending. Um, I feel the frequency uh, tuning higher. It makes me a better version of me. That's me personally. For everybody, whatever. Um, when you're depressed, it's really hard to see the bigger picture because you feel like you are wrapped in a blanket of darkness. And a lot of you guys know, a lot of you guys don't know. I've been there. By the way, let me make this point again, too, about the bigger picture. There's so many people out there right now that want to argue drugs are bad. Don't do drugs. But you wait. You wait until their dick stops getting hard and see if they're not, see if they're not a little pro-drug then. A little bit then. Yeah, see if they don't change their mind. You know, a bigger picture – by then, you know, and overall, a lot of people that may say a lot of shit before are now okay with it just because the education has gone that way and they're sheep. And so that's the way that it goes. Um, but back to the depression thing, you know, um, 
you get surrounded with a blanket of darkness. You can't see through it as far as you normally can see. And you can have people there that are for you, that are with you, that love you, and you can't even see them. You can't even feel that connection. Depression is a, is a, is a crazy thing. Um, it runs in my family. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> you know, the brain chemistry, it's, it's an amazing thing. It's great to just think um, you could just think thoughts and uh, and make yourself automatically feel better. Brain chemistry is pretty powerful, though. And sometimes, you you know, you need to uh, sometimes <clears throat> back to the drugs. Sometimes some people actually do need drugs to, to balance out the, the brain chemistry. <clears throat> and they're brought up to believe that they, that they shouldn't do that, myself included. <clears throat> That's one of the hardest things uh, for me to uh, to actually go on antidepressants when I went through this really dark uh, thing in, in 2016. But uh, I've said this many times. It, it, someone brought up, you know, my evil ex is brought up a lot on here. That's because that's when I learned a lot, like going through that whole situation of the whole relationship with the evil ex, the time in between, and then getting with Katie. Um, that was me going, going from a caterpillar through the fucking um, nest, whatever the fuck they build, catacombs, what the fuck? <laughs> and, then, and now look at this pretty happy butterfly. But that, for me, like, I grew through that, so it's going to be a reference a lot because, you know, I feel like I was a kid there. But anyway, for people that are depressed or not feeling uh, that good, I, I want you to think about there is a bigger picture that you don't see, you know, like uh, when I was going through the divorce, man, I was so against it because I was brought up to believe that's the ultimate failure. You know, I was going to fight tooth and nail and make sure when that bitch left that I had tried everything within my power to try to make it work, made her completely understand. I didn't want it to go that way. When it got to uh, a fact, she's leaving for sure either way. Um, you know, dealing with that got, got pretty bad. Now I'm in this big lonely house and I just got the dog and the dog dies and my dad dies. And I, and I was like, I got like in this, in this darkness where it was like, I know I'm RVD. I know people are excited as fuck to see me everywhere. All I got to do is go down to the grocery store and I'll get love. But I couldn't see that when I'm in that darkness. And so I know what that's like. And so a lot of people that are uh, watching this or listening, believe me, you know, when it comes to mental health, I haven't begun to talk enough about that, uh, even from, from my own experiences. And the thing is, you, you can feel hopeless even if logic tells you that you have hope. You can feel alone even though you know that – there are some other people and it's, it's just this fucked up brain chemistry. And sometimes you got to see a doctor and just because you tried one before and it didn't work doesn't mean shit because you might not have got the right doctor. Fuck. You can't score a hundred percent and go to the right person every time and consider that your whole experience. What kind of basic thinking is that shit? But check this out, man. If I would have known in the bigger picture that I was going to be as happy as I am today in 2023, 
I wouldn't have been so down. I would have said, you know, this is this is what I got to do to fucking move past this. And oh my god, looking back at it, my evil ex did me such a favor. She helped the quality of my life so much by leaving so much even in our happiest moments there were nothing at all like i feel like now having someone that we have a, a real bond real trust real love and even though i felt like at the time uh that i had a good thing looking back at it now knowing the bigger picture dude i was complacent i was happy with the the words that we spoke meaning we promised each other to each other but it wasn't real obviously and i've said this before i was never even her top priority and we both knew that and and my self-esteem must have been so low or my belief in that commitment was so high that i was okay with her being my priority and me being somewhere down her list and that's fucked up and now looking back at it I deserved so much more. And I'm sure even my evil ex would agree to this statement. We both did not deserve to have each other. <laughs> However you want to. But we deserve to be with other people. Um, it was not a good match. And so, like, all the little nitpicking I can do and say, well, she was a bitch about the dishwasher. She was – No. Bigger picture, you know what? We didn't fit together. We were not a good match. We shouldn't have been married. Uh, the whole time, uh, we fought so much from dating through newlywed, through being around after 10 years. There's like another eight years of just bullshit and misery and, 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 and like uh, losing, losing ourselves in, 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 in a, a pointless, needless fight to keep something that didn't deserve our loyalty. Back to last week's value. It didn't that relationship did not deserve our loyalty. And she didn't give it our loyalty. <laughs> anyway, bigger picture. I'm so fucking happy today. And I'm a better person. I feel better physically. Uh and, and life is, is just the best that it's ever been. So, you know, there's always a bigger picture, and that's what I want you to remember. How about that? Heck yeah, Rob. That's a great one because it's like when you're, yeah, if you're in the midst of a depression, you cannot see through the woods whatsoever. And people will tell you you can have the support around you a lot of the time. But it, once you're, if you're in the thick of it, it's so hard to consider the bigger picture when it comes to all that stuff because – it's the chemical makeup. It's all that stuff. It's like, who man, 2016, that was a rough year for me, too, at that point in time. I was going through a lot, so it's like... But realizing it, now that I see the bigger picture of it all, it's like, wow, look at how all that kind of paid off in the end. You know? Yep. The journey that it went yep. through. So, no doubt about yep. it. Good stuff, man. Can't wait to talk about that next week. Um, cool. Hey, before we get out of here, I did want to put over your uh, interview you did with uh, RJ City, the uh, Hey EW. Uh, did you yeah. get, catch those clips and stuff like that? That's good stuff, man. <laughs> no, I mean, I retweeted him, but I didn't hit play and watch any of them. Oh. It, was, it was an interesting interview. Right? You did it. You guys, <laughs> the way you riffed off of one another is pretty fun stuff. I, yeah, that was. I didn't know what to expect, so I right. was just, 
Yeah, responding off of him and uh, had some pretty weird questions. Oh, yeah, there was definitely some weird ones. (laughs) But it was a lot of fun. Uh, Yeah, if you guys haven't got a chance, check that out. Um, Rob, anything you want to plug? The big days coming up, sir. This this weekend, I am going to Hamburg, Pennsylvania. I believe it's called Legends Fest. And uh, looks like uh, uh, quite a few of my peers will be there as well. I think so, Sabu's going to uh, be there, too. I think I saw him. Yep. Sabu said he's going to be there. And uh, Fonzie will be there as well. Oh, All right. Yeah. So flying into Philly. And then uh, I guess it's almost a two-hour drive, roughly, almost to uh, to Probably Hamburg. like Amish country, I think, in a way. Like middle of okay. state, middle of state area. So, yeah, m- more on the Philly side. I'll bring an extension cord from Philly. Yeah, bring an extension cord. <laughs> so, and then coming up, you got the Battle Creek show on uh, September 30th yeah, sir. Yep. We'll be back here before then, but that's coming up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Coming up. All right, guys. Hey, thank you guys for joining us this week. If you want to check us out, go to rvdpod.com to get all the clips that you want. Uh, full episodes will be posted on YouTube eventually here. We also, but if you want to get them early, it's every Friday at 420 on the Premier Streaming Network. I don't know where to point right here down there if you see that. So um, I'm trying to think of anything else. Follow RVD at The Real RVD. Follow the pod at RVD Pod. And, yeah, that's about it. Rob, good show, man. Learned a lot. Yeah, uh, I got to cool. go. Hey, something. I'm going to, um, you know, be, before we before we hit record, we were talking about, um, I was saying that I got some, uh, uh, I got some ultrasounds done today. Yes. And, um, and I was saying, you know, even though we got – the smartest fans. I still like to get experts' opinions on what's going on in, inside my body. You know, uh, for me, that's thinking um, bigger picture. I mean, obviously, we have some very intelligent fans on Twitter that that, that have told me that I have concussion damage, but still, just the same as a plan B. I've gone to a few different neurologists and other MDs. And I gotten their take uh, on uh, on my uh, damage, and I've taken tests and and passed um, uh, to get uh, that I, that I was uh, back to normal and had no long term concussion damage. But that's Plan B in case the fan is wrong. You know, the experts. And same thing with my lungs. You know, this this fan said recently that uh, you know he he knows he's got better lungs than mine, obviously because uh, because I smoke weed just. I just want to say I had a second doctor look at the reports a few days ago, uh, look at my scans that I got on my lungs. He said my lungs are clear. He said there's no inflammation. There's no um, uh, scabbing or any signs of abnormalities or signs of any smoke damage. But that's just thinking bigger picture, you know, just in case the fan is wrong. I've had two different doctors uh, look at look at my scans. And so, you know, I don't know what to do with that information, you know, except for share it. Because, uh, like I said, I know, uh, as Jack Herrer told me, that uh, cannabis will e- elongate your life expectancy. And in a few years, everyone else is going to know it, too. And then they'll see the bigger picture. But I see it now, but I do appreciate the fans constant medical reports on my health please keep them coming keep them coming i want to know more uh i learned a keep lot them coming bros 
Bring him to Hamburg this weekend. Bring him to Hamburg, yeah. Bring your, bring your health reports. That's right. I want a full documentation. We'll post <laughs> them up on the pod here. We'll get, we'll get you going. I was waiting for some kind of sign, some kind of indication. I was wasting my time. I got myself about the